0: This morning's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you very much for allowing us the pleasure of being able to hear your word. And I pray that we wouldn't just hear it and have it pass through and not actually change anything about ourselves, but that we'd hear exactly what you'd have us to do. And implement that in such a way where it makes an impact for your kingdom and in our lives. Thank you very much for all that you've done for us, and I pray that you bless this sermon. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find.
1: inconceivable, inconceivable, inconceivable. The first verse in this passage reminds me of an oft-used word from an all-time great movie. What is that movie? (laughs) Princess Bride. Uh, It is actually 35 years old, came out in 1987. If you haven't seen it, uh, you must do it. It's a bucket bucket list item. Uh, but there's a character, a short little bald man named Vincini, who repeats the word inconceivable almost every chance he gets, when finally his companion, Inigo Montoya, has enough and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And hopefully you can forgive me, but when it comes to verse 11, our first verse in this passage, there's the word sanctifies and sanctified. And they do not create for me an instant understanding. Because the word sanctify, or to be sanctified, or to be the one who is sanctifying, as Jesus is us, carries many different implications and meanings. So when we read this passage, and it says sanctifies, it may mean what it means, but it may not mean what you think it means. And so the root word for sanctifies uh, in the Greek is hagias, comes from hagos, which means an awful thing. An additional meaning could be a holy one, a holy thing, or a holy person, a saint. And additionally, it could mean something that is sacred, something that is physically pure, morally blameless, or religiously or ceremonially consecrated to be used in a special, unique way. Now, when we think of hagios, really what's being described is something that is holy. It is something that really initially just describes the character and, most important, defining thing about God. But for us to consider God in this first definition as awful, it's not something that is common in our churches, is it? We shouldn't think of God as awful as in God is bad, but we should think of God as awful as someone that is eliciting awe or great reverence, fear or trembling in His presence. An awful thing, the haggos of God, is a healthy respect for the sheer power and authority of God. Jesus himself taught this in Matthew 10, 28 through 29. He says this, speaking of the devil, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Speaking of God, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? In this this scripture, Jesus speaks to the, the awful, the terrible, the terrifying, the powerful nature of this holy God who has the power and the authority to destroy you. Not only that, it seems that he has the knowledge of the smallest, most intimate things in our world, such as two sparrows sold for a penny. And not only that, he has the power and the influence, it says, to orchestrate them falling to the ground. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The awful, the hagos, the awe-inspiring, the fear-inducing, the trembling power of God is unique to him and his nature. Later in Hebrews, I won't get into it and spoil it because it'll be about four months before you get there, but it says that God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. When people in Christian culture use the term don't play church, they're usually saying, like, make your faith something real and something serious. And and, and the message really behind that is this message We were created by a powerful God. This powerful God is holy. This powerful God is purifying. This powerful God is a consuming fire. And you don't want to live your life in such a way that when it comes time, your wickedness must be destroyed because his purity can't tolerate it. Additionally, we see the definition of sanctified as a holy one, a holy thing, or a saint. This is representing the cleansed nature of those who believe. A saint is one who has been cleansed through faith and is being cleansed by the work of the Spirit. This is the most common understanding for most of us. When we hear the church word, the biblical word, sanctify, this is the one that comes to our mind, the one that we understand 1 Peter 1, 15-16 says this, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Sanctification is this gradual process of someone who puts their faith in Christ, but now you're still here on this earth and you do not look like Christ. But over time, our calling is to conform to the image of Christ, to be holy just as He is holy, to look more and more like Him through the progressive work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, we we have this view. We put our faith in Christ. We are cleansed. We are made holy. We can stand before this powerful, awe-inducing God because we have been cleansed by the offering of Christ on the cross. But just because we have been cleansed and our sins washed away doesn't mean that we stay the same. As Hebrews 10, 14 says, we've been perfected for all time, but we are being sanctified. Our lives start to look more and more and more and our behavior and our heart starts to resemble that more and more and more of Jesus. This concept goes back, was eventually catechized in Westminster Shorter Catechism. It defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Early church father put it like this, real and internal renovation of man by which God delivers the man planted in Christ by faith and justified, more and more from his native depravity and transforms him into his own image. This idea of sanctification is the one that I'm most familiar with. I I would... I going to say, because of all church history and all that's been written, it's the one most of us are familiar with. That upon salvation, yes, we are cleansed. We stand before our holy God without fear and within his love. But over time, his work and his power takes us from our native depravity, our depraved state, and transforms us to look more and more like him. So just to review, there is an element of sanctification tied to the holy, terrifying fear-inducing nature of God. It is his consuming fire. Then there is holiness of sanctification that looks like moral purity. For this is our cleansing of sin and the mirroring of God's perfection in our behavior. But this brings us to the third definition we saw of sanctification, and it is the sacred the sacred. It is something that has been set aside, has been cleansed, but it has been moved aside for a specific purpose and use in the hands of God. As scholars are uh studying more and more and looking at this idea of sanctification. They they are understanding that within the Bible, when sanctification is used, it's not just this like one thing in the middle that, that we generally understand. It, it has multiple meanings, mul- multiple times, and so as we go through the passages, we have to look for like certain context clues of, of what sanctification is really meaning here. And so in this passage, we're trying to figure out, like we're being sanctified by Christ, it says, but how? What does that mean? What does sanctification look like? D.A. Carson said uh, of sanctification, he says it's commonplace among many Pauline scholars that sanctification commonly refers to the initial setting aside of an individual for God at his conversion. So you're picked out of a crowd, you were converted, now you are set aside by God for specific use. We saw this illustrated many times in the Old Testament as different prophets were called as their lives were dedicated to the Lord for service. What I would say to you this morning is we need to take a hold of this second understanding of what sanctification is for us. To understand this, I think it's best to look at the life of Jesus And really, all we have to do to to first start is to go back just one verse that we saw last week in Hebrews 2, verse 10. Talking to Jesus, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sums to glory, should make the founder. The founder is Jesus, the he is God the Father, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Let me read that again. For it was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, us, should make the founder of our salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, I have a question. One that... uh, It's kind of shaking my Sunday school theology. I thought Jesus was perfect. I thought the moral purity of Jesus was evident in the Scriptures. I thought Jesus, being a representative of the triune Godhead, shared in this awe-inducing power and authority over creation. What about Jesus needed to be sanctified? Does it imply that there was some lack? That in his humanity, maybe he lost something? I don't think that's the case. I think what's really being communicated in verse 10 is that Jesus had to be perfected through the sacred nature of his work. Jesus was set aside by God to do a job. There was a job that had to be done and fulfilled by Jesus. To be clear, Jesus was not lacking anything. But the fulfillment of his purpose on earth was not going to be perfected without his obedience and his obedience and suffering to the point of death on the cross. Let me say it again. Jesus was not lacking anything as God But the fulfillment of his purpose, his sanctification, his setting aside on earth was not going to be perfected without his suffering. This is the third definition. This is consecration. We see this clearly in John 17, Jesus acknowledges This, he says, sanctify them, us again, in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself aside. I've been sent into this world for the work of consecrating myself so that through Jesus' work, we would be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus, in John 17, verse 19, says he is consecrated. He is sanctified. He is set aside. He has submitted himself to this process that results in our sanctification. Second definition, our cleansing, our, our being made perfect, our changing over time. If it weren't for Jesus' consecration, if it weren't for the perfection of Jesus in his earthly task and ministry, we do not have sanctification. And so Jesus had to be perfected, as this passage says, for us to share in sanctification, to share in what the Bible says being called sons and daughters of God. To the Hebrews reading this passage, the correlation to their sanctification and their own suffering was evident. Persecution was on them from all sides, from fellow Jews, from the Gentile authorities, and from trials that are common with life, sin, sickness, and death. But what about us? What is our example to be set apart? What is our consecrated act of service? The readers of this Hebrews passage, when they read in their time, to see that Christ's work and dedication, what he was set aside for to God, would be suffering, it was easy for them to make the direct correlation and say, oh, yeah, me too. The work that God has set us aside for is to live faithfully in dedication to him in spite of the threat of imprisonment, abandonment by family, and even death. For most of us, though, there is no government official displaying our mutilated bodies as a warning to the world not to follow our faith. There is no betrayal of our familial ties due to our theological disagreements. So what is it for us? Because we are not facing imminent suffering and persecution. I would say in this point in time in history, in our place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, our consecrated act, our set-aside act of service to God right now doesn't resemble what the initial readers of this passage thought it would. I think for us, The answer of what is our consecrated act of service and how do we get there is found in the rest of our passage, starting in verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is being described in this passage is Defined simply and known as the Incarnation. Most of the time, we visit the Incarnation around Christmas, uh, but there is so much going on around the Christmas holiday and Advent that the Incarnation doesn't necessarily always get the time that it deserves, and then a lot of the time, it's not revisited until like Christmas rolls back around. What is the Incarnation? The Incarnation is. That God, represented through the Son, Jesus, left his heavenly place. And as verse 14 says, it says, he partook in our flesh and blood. That means the immortal that could not suffer death became mortal and descended to earth as a man. It's what verse 14 says. It says he shared our flesh and blood. He partook of the same things, and in his death, he destroyed the devil. It also goes on to say that he was made like us, not just in his humanity, but he was made like us, in verse 17, in every respect Jesus, this awe-inspiring God, a part of the triune Godhead, traded immortality for mortality, traded his heavenly home and glory for humiliation and suffering on earth. But That is like the technical definition of, of incarnation, God becoming man, God embodying man. But what is really like philosophically happening? What is the meaning behind God doing this? To me, incarnation is the laying aside of our rights for the sake of love and for the mission of God's plan of redemption. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 describes it like this. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The sanctification of Jesus, defined as the consecrated work that only he could do, was on display in the incarnation. In his humility and laying aside his divine rights, he completed his task in perfect obedience to God, even to the point of death. And what does this have to do with us? Well, again, I said, like, there's not a government tracking us down, mutilating our bodies, and putting them on display as a warning to people, don't follow this Jesus. But I think for each and every one of us, no matter our circumstance, no matter our place in life, and no matter what's going on around us in the world, can take the example of Jesus in the incarnation when he set aside his rights for the mission and purpose of God in saving and redeeming his people. We all know what we deserve. We're all very familiar with all the good things in our life that that, that means that additional good things are coming to us. We all know when we have been violated. We all know when when our rights are, are starting to be infringed upon. We all know when our comfortability is starting to to be pushed away and lost. But we also know that to follow the example of Jesus, to follow his example and to be like him, means to set aside those rights. It means to be uncomfortable. It means to put yourself in situations where you may suffer humiliation and even death. And we had a beautiful example of people who take this calling seriously. Uh, The Clements are, are back with us this morning. It's amazing to have them. Some of my favorite people. It's worked out perfectly. But in their life, They have taken this call to embody the love of God. They have taken this call of sanctification, to be set aside for a work very seriously. For many of us, we have great boundaries around how God can use us. We know the fence line of our life. I'll serve God, I'll follow God. Um, I'll go to church on Sunday. What do you mean I don't make myself uncomfortable to follow God? I got up at 8 a.m. this morning to be here. Cool. When's the last time you went out of your way to show the love of Christ to someone that didn't deserve it? When's the last time you went out of your way to serve someone who did deserve it, but it would have been at your expense? We have missionaries with us today. as a beautiful example. And to be clear, not everyone is called to go and serve in Africa. Not every one of us is called to go and serve in Africa with two children under the age of three and with a newborn. I'll grant you that. But all of us are to be sanctified, as verse 11 says, by the sanctifier. And how do we do it? We follow his example. His example beautifully displayed in the incarnation. Christ could have remained in heaven, remained morally pure, remained all-powerful and fear-inducing. But he set aside his rights He set aside that power for the work and purpose of God. There's something that each and every one of us must set aside in our life. There's something each and every one of us needs to push away for the purpose and use of God. If you hear me this morning, you hear, oh yeah, I think I could find a way to serve in the church. Great, we can always use more volunteers. But I want to put you a little further than that. What's your home like? How are you serving a spouse in the time that maybe they don't deserve it? How are you setting aside your rights when it comes to your time, your money, I have to admit, this is an area uh, I'm not great at. I don't know my neighbors well. Um, a lot of times, uh, my wife's like, "Why aren't you more friendly with them? They're people in need of the gospel too." And I'm like, "Well, my whole my whole job, my whole title is about giving people the gospel, right? That's the boundary I've made." And it's probably one that needs to change because to have any real effect in this world is not just about service in the house of God. It's about serving and opening your eyes and being uncomfortable to go and reach the lost in the life that God has for you. Your workplace, your neighbor's, Are an opportunity for the consecrated work of God to be displayed in your life. Next time it snows, we have some time. You can build your way up to this. Next time it snows, go out, shovel your neighbor's drive. You're out mowing, as long as they aren't like crazy about it, go mow your neighbor's yard. Open up the door for conversation. Open up the door for relationship. Clean your house up a little bit. Share a meal. Open up your life to those who are in need of knowing this Jesus who left heaven, left his comfortability, and came to earth for their sake, for their salvation. we should go back um, to John 17 because Jesus says, I, I consecrated myself, but he says, he says, you sent me into the world. I've been incarnated in the world so, that, so I have sent them into the world. God sent Jesus into the world. The direct result is that we would go into the world as a result of his work. Sure, we could use more volunteers here, but ask yourself, how are you being sent into the world? How are you being sanctified and sanctified by the work that God has for you? How are you serving? How are you opening doors to the conversation to share the good news of Jesus with others? 2 Timothy 2 verse 21 sums it up perfectly like this, and, and this is really uh, the conclusion that I'll leave with you today. 2 Timothy 2 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready to, For every good work. I don't want you to be confused and think that like your main role in this thing called faith is just to be used in the hands of God. Now it says. you should cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. I've met a lot of people with a lot of zeal who want to tell everybody about Jesus, but their life is a mess. They don't have the sanctification that that actually brings them closer to looking what Jesus looked like in his moral purity. But it says, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. And when you do that, you are a vessel for honorable use. You are set apart as holy, and you are useful to the master, ready for every, every good work. My encouragement to you as we close is yes, allow the one who has saved us to sanctify us. If there are things in your life that need to be cleansed from that are dishonorable, repent of those things. Get them out of your life but if you say, you know, I feel pretty close to the Lord. I feel like my walk is solid. I'm not perfect, obviously. But there's an initial, there's a next step for you to take, and that is to be a vessel for honorable use. That is to recognize that you are set apart as holy and sanctified, and you are useful to God. If you hear this, and you're trying to justify why you can't. Time, money, stress. Allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to cleanse you of that notion, and potentially to cleanse you of that idol that will allow you to self-justify your lack of usefulness in the hands of God.